This yes. is hell. Okie doke. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. Capitalism criminalized a way of living collectively. The birth of the state doomed a culture to centuries of oppression, including police violence. Once freed from the Holocaust concentration camps, Europe's Romani were not greeted with open arms, but forced into ghettos that resemble open-air prisons. The Roma are punished by white society for not being more white. Roma children are ridiculed at white schools while being taught that their families and way of living, well, that, that's all backwards. With anti-immigration sentiment on the rise, the Roma are increasingly the target of extremist right-wing hatred and violence. But again, it's not only the vigilante violence that Roma are subjected to, but violence by the state. Like the recent death of 40-year-old Stanislav Tomasz, who video evidence showed, died in police custody when an officer applied a chokehold by kneeling on his neck. In the video, a woman can be heard saying, screaming, they're smothering him. A man's voice replies, that's their job, which is another violence Roma face every day in Europe. The violence of systemic and institutional racism. Anti-Roma racism is so prevalent in Europe that even the left will not support the Roma cause. After last summer's protests against racialized police, police violence, Europe's left still will not find common ground with the Roma. We'll try to figure out why and what the Roma can do, and yes, what white people can do, and what they shouldn't do to help the Roma cause in a few, few minutes when we speak with Sabian Fizula, who wrote the Roar magazine article, The Roma Struggle from Protests to Political Liberation. Anti-Roma racism remains pervasive across Europe. It is time to develop a common political agenda for the unification and collective liberation of the Roma. Sabian is a militant with Kala Image, which means Roma for ourselves, uh, and I'm probably horribly mispronouncing that, but I couldn't find a pronunciation online, uh, Roma anti-racist organization. Sabian is also a researcher at the Center for Social Studies, University of Coimbra in Portugal. You can follow her on Twitter at Sebi Shutka, that's S-E-B-I-S-H-U-T, K-A. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing today's show. If it's Monday, it must be Jess Lipka. Jess, what's new by you? I'm good. I'm going to Lansing this week, actually. Lansing, Michigan or Illinois? I didn't know there was a Lansing, Illinois. <laughs> yeah, Lansing, Michigan. You do not want to go to Lansing. If you don't want to be in Lansing, Michigan, you definitely don't want to be in Lansing, <laughs> yeah. Illinois. What are you doing in Lansing, Michigan this weekend? Um, I'm actually, I'm visiting a friend of the show. Do you, you remember Duncan? He was on to talk about prisons. Uh, Dun here. Yes. Duncan, Duncan Tarr. Tar, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to hang out with him. Do you know him? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no kidding. Met him through friends. Yeah. Awesome, man. I know some people in uh, Lansing that you should definitely hook up with while you're there. Yeah. Yeah. We should talk uh, at yeah. the show. <laughs> yeah. There's a... Uh... Yeah, one person in particular that you should definitely hook up with. Uh, I started packing for my annual summer vacation at Cottage on Lake this weekend. I'm really, really looking forward to it. Not that I'm counting the days, hours, or minutes, but it starts in about four days, one hour, and 11 minutes, and 18 seconds. And this weekend I became a legal officiant, as in I now can officiate weddings, I think. At least, I hope the state of Michigan recognizes me as a 
legal wedding officiant, as this weekend I was ordained in the Church of the Subgenius and am scheduled to officiate my niece's wedding on Labor Day weekend. So let's just hope that the state of Michigan recognizes the Church of the Subgenius as a religion so I can actually officiate the wedding I'm scheduled to be officiating on Labor Day weekend. But more importantly than any of that, Jess, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is rich person voice. So where are you summering? So where are you summering? That's as good as I got right now. That was just off the top. I haven't been practicing, I promise. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Again, our Facebook page is at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Our Twitter handle is at thisishellradio. And my email address is chuck at thisishell.com. Jess will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our discussion with Sabian. you Again, the question from hell is, so where are you summering? So where are you summering? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover cure. This is hell, and Jess has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is go swim in the sea. According to the article, the top five hangover cures for International Hangover Day, which was posted at meanwhileinireland.com. <laughs> meanwhileinireland.com is such a great web address. Um, not only is there an International Hangover Day, but it is celebrated on the first Saturday of August each year, which this year is perfectly positioned the day after International Beer Day. Writer Sean McKillen reports sea swimming is all the rage these days for its health and circulation benefits for socializing and now of course for the cure if you've been in the atlantic or the irish sea you'll know that it takes a couple of deep breaths and a bit of focus to take the plunge literally so believe us when we say you probably uh, you will probably not be too focused on your hangover when your body is submerged in cold water but let's face it not only will you be on your way back to curing your hangover but your body will get a kick start from the temperature change so this is definitely one of the best Irish hangover cures. That makes this week's hangover cure sea swimming. <laughs> sea swimming. All I have to do is find a sea. Does Lake Michigan count as a sea? It's an inland sea, right? Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell, and you can help with our horrible business model by subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. And if you are a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast that streams live every Friday, again, at patreon.com slash thisishell, you heard the third installment of A Brief History of This Is Hell, the first part of which was featured on the day that marked This Is Hell being on the air 25 years, and that was back on Tuesday, July 20th. The second and final chapters were on our past two Patreon podcasts the last two Fridays during this year's final part of a brief history of This Is Hell. I say this year because social media reminded me that I apparently do these brief histories of This Is Hell on a semi-regular basis whenever our anniversary rolls around, I guess. On Patreon Friday, I recalled the Chicago alderman who was upset with us. 
the activist group that demanded we give them our show, the activists who warned us to not discuss the cause they themselves were actually involved in, the NPR contest where I was a finalist and that contest was seemingly rigged, how we accidentally facilitated a crime and our own unrecognized complicity in getting us knocked off the air temporarily. We also shared our 2009 interview with international relations scholar Peter Gowan, who had just posted the new Left Review article, Crisis in the Heartland. Peter tells us the how and why of the 2008 financial crisis only months after it happened. He then tells us what could be done to make certain it never happens again, which we did not do, and what will likely happen instead due to the power of Wall Street, which is exactly what happened. But you can only hear this year's version of A Brief History of This Is Hell in a prescient talk with the late, great Peter Gowan, who passed away only a few months after our conversation, by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell, and it's cheap, damn cheap. We got an email at chuck at thisishell.com from Martin about our conversation with Avi Gerlich on far-right-wing violent Israeli extremism. Martin writes... Hi, Chuck. I just wanted to add an observation I had while listening to your interview last week with Avi Gerlich of Hypocrite Reader. As you may or may not be aware, I'm Jewish. And while I don't remember very much about my time in Hebrew school, looking back on it now, all the history we were taught, all the songs we sang, and all the Jewish traditions we studied revolved around one larger theme. The Jews are, and always have been, an oppressed and despised community. And there's a good deal of truth in that, I think. But when you take all the traumas that we as Jews have suffered throughout history and combine it with a repeated emphasis on victimization through Hebrew school, is it any wonder that Jews here in the United States, and especially in Israel, have a hard time understanding and empathizing with the rights of the Palestinian people? I mean, your guest said it himself. There's this terrible fear that if the Israelis let their guard down, even for a minute, they'll be wiped out by their Arab neighbors. I don't know what a solution to this problem would look like, but I don't think there's any way to establish peace in Israel and Palestine without addressing the this, this psychological wound first. And I have to agree with you in the way that Avi was describing uh, Mayor Kahane and the way that he views uh, or viewed uh, democracy as two opposing sides just wanting to dominate the other. I mean, that's a very, very scary view of what democracy is supposed to be. Martin, as I am not Jewish, I do not know what it is like to go to school and be told by your teachers that you are despised and oppressed and the constant reminder of being victims of a holocaust however that does sound like hell and it is worth keeping in mind when considering israeli-palestinian tensions and trying to understand all of the different perspectives we also got an email from justin about this is art the art show that's opening during the 25th anniversary listener appreciation party and art show that is happening at carrie's lounge 2251 west devon avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood on Saturday, September 18th, when we here at This Is Hell will finally be celebrating our 25th anniversary, which happened this month, but we had to delay the party until September due to the pandemic, and hopefully we'll be able to have it then. Justin writes, I've been meaning to send you an email about my interest in entering the art show. I'm working on a series of little shadow box-like cutouts that may seem fitting. 
I've included images of a prototype, and actual ones will be painted. I also have some leather patches that could be tossed in as raffle prizes. Let me know what you think. Regardless if they get in or not, my partner and I are looking forward to attending the party in September. And that is fantastic. We've been getting a lot of emails from people all over the country who say that they're going to come visit for the party. They were going to because it was going to be on Labor Day weekend. We had a three-day weekend. So I figured they'd all bail by now because this isn't going to be a three-day weekend. It's just going to be a regular weekend. But man, a lot of people are telling me they're going to come in from all over the country for this party. We then immediately got a follow-up email from Justin who writes, I forgot to write about how I discovered this is hell. I wore noise-canceling headphones seven hours a day working in a machine shop and was looking for something to listen to other than audiobooks and music. A buddy introduced me to Chapo Trap House when they first came out, and after getting annoyed with them, I googled podcasts similar to Chapo or something of the likes. I found a Reddit post that had This Is Hell, a name that instantly struck my interest, and I've been hooked ever since. Cheers, Justin. And uh, yeah, we actually had a producer. One of the producers on our show was a producer here before he went to go work for Chapo, before Chapo even existed. So always a very small world with us in that ridiculousness. Email us at chocolatethisishell.com with your suggestions of artists to show their art at the This Is Art opening during the anniversary party or recommend musicians you would like to perform, hear perform, or tell us how you first discovered This Is Hell, and we'll share your suggestions, recommendations, and stories on air. Of course, you can actually send us stuff in the actual mail, and that's just what Kennedy Printing in Detroit did, Wild Folk Farms of Maine did, and a New York Times bestselling author also sent us something in the mail, and we'll tell you what we got in the mail following our conversation with Sabian. Coming up, white European liberals oppose racism everywhere while tolerating Europe's and their own racism toward Roma. We'll also have this week in Rotten History some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, so where are you summering? So where are you summering? And like I said, we got some stuff in the actual mail that we'll be telling you about in just a few moments. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity in talk radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. European racism toward the Roma people is systemic. It is institutionalized, it's tolerated and normalized. It's the kind of deeply entrenched racism that follows the logic of the racism being the victim's own fault. It's white supremacy, yet Europe's white liberals don't seem to notice. Here to explain ongoing anti-Roma racism, how it started, and how it can end. Sabian Fizula wrote the Roar magazine article, The Roma Struggle from Protests to Political Liberation. Welcome to This Is How Sabian. Welcome. Hello. Uh, Hi, Chuck. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, good morning to all the This Is Hell audience. I'm so very happy to be here today with, with you, especially today on the 2nd of August, because today is the European Roma Holocaust Memorial Day. On 2nd of August, we roam across uh, European countries and community 
um, remember our ancestors killed by the Nazi regime. Now, on this day, in 1944, between 3,000 to 4,000 Sinti and Roma were murdered in the concentration camp in Auschwitz-Birkenau. During the night, they were taken by the SS guard uh, to the gas, uh, gas uh, chamber. No? On these days, in 1944, the SS guard finished what they couldn't do in the 16th of May. So they, in it was... Uh, uh, planned on the 16th of May 1944 to exterminate the Roma in that camp. However, that night, Roma and Sinti resisted. They fought back um, against the SS guards and they couldn't eliminate them, no? And that's why they, they, they did it only on the 2nd of, of August. And in the in the Roma history, we are celebrating 16th of May as the Roma resistance uh, day. So for us to... Um, to be to be able to be uh, here with all of you and to tell our perspective of, of the European history of the Roma struggle, so a huge huge importance. Now the fact that only in 2015 the European Parliament passed a, res a resolution to recognize 2nd of August as European Roma Holocaust Memorial Day tells us a lot about how little political attention is given to the Roma's humanities and. Um, the Roma Holocaust in, in Romanes is known as, it's called to be Samudaripen or Poremos. This is how we call it now. And for us, it is very important to know that that lack of attention that was given to the genocide reflect the continual systematic of oppression the 77 years since then drama still face in Europe today. And what is another curious fact and very important to know is that Roma faced another genocide even before the Second World War, which happened in Spain on July 30th in 1749, that is known as La Gran Redada, or the general, general imprisonment of Roma, it was a raid organized um, and approved by the Spanish monarchy that led to the arrest of all Roma in the region and their imprisonment of labor camps. This raid was approved by the King Ferdinand VI of Spain and organized by the Marquess of Ensenanda, which in that time was a royal ministry. And it is estimated that between nine to 12,000 Roma were killed in that genocide. And this is the untold history of Roma. Many European Romans do not know even about this first genocide that took place long before the Second World War. No? And this tells us a lot about who tells the history of Europe, from which perspective, the fact that these type of events are almost unknown, and the fact that these type of events have never received historical damage, a historical reparation over um, the damage of Roma humanity. So thank you very much for having me. So how much do you think anti-Roma racism in Europe is caused by the fact that the Roma are a reminder of Europe's inhumanity, at whether it was during the Spanish Inquisition or during the Holocaust? Are, are the Roma... Absolutely. Okay. So are the Roma, so that that is what drives the hatred, you think, towards the Romas, that they are just a reminder of how inhumane... Europeans can be? I mean, absolutely what we always say from, from Kalea Minge, that's the name of 
the organization I belong to. From Palea Mindy, we always say that in order to, to understand the current situation of Roma in Europe, the current systematic oppression, it is very important to look at how uh, history of European modern states were built no? during uh, the construction of the modern European uh, states. Uh, they were always built under the dehumanization of the other, no? and this is where Roma were placed to at that time. And nowadays, this is when you no know, the the gypsy was created as the other, because the creation of the gypsy as the other becomes a necessity for maintenance of 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 dominance and, and racial difference. So that's why we we can understand. Uh, Europe's anti-Gypsyism, not only as a form of racism against Roma, but it is also a historical identity upon which Europe builds and maintains its whiteness and structure of dominance. So from one hand, anti-Gypsyism is the political tool of an ontological impossibility of Roma life. And then on the other hand, anti-Gypsyism is the political practice upon which white identity is built. So anti-Gypsyism or anti-Roma racism is the political practice that is racially embedded in the very ideology of Europe and its white institutions that are situated in a hierarchical position that have historical colonial roots and whose racial ideology is based on a coloniality of power. So only like this, we can then understand that anti-Gypsyism indeed excludes Roma existence as an alternative mode of life. It eliminates possibilities of thinking and being other way of human that is not the white human. So to say, Roma historically were considered as non-humans enough. So all the policies that we have nowadays in Europe, those policies, this aim to make Roma humans enough to teach Roma how, how, how to behave. Here in the United States, a lot of people believe in and embrace the idea of American exceptionalism. American exceptionalism is in mm -hmm. deep denial about how gen uh, genocide and slavery were the foundations of the United States. So is there also a European exceptionalism? And part of that European exceptionalism is denying the uh, ongoing genocide against the Roma. Absolutely. I mean, that's why it is very important to decolonize uh, European history and to tell our our history. No? So Europe, after the Second World War, Europe built this ideology of this trinity, let's call it, the dem democracy, human rights, the rule of law, and that within this trinity, there is no place for race. No, So they say, by not talking about race, Supposedly, we are going to eliminate any racial difference in Europe, which in contrary, you know, uh, in fact, the failed argument of Auschwitz never again in relation to Roma became again and again because the oppression continued. It just it changed its forms of, of expressions. Now, now we have these modern ways of disciplining, controlling, educating the Roma body. And then uh, in one my another article, I call that anti-Gypsyism is the permanent state of exceptions, which means that um, the violence is permanent because there is always uh, an exception. And that exception always 
always makes it to be justified and normalized too. So why does Roma life seemingly so offend whiteness and white identity? What is it about Roma life that challenges whiteness? I think that what is crucial here to understand is that uh, I, I would turn the, the question and I would say, what is it about whiteness no, that doesn't allow, doesn't permit Roma life or Roma, yes, Roma life to exist the way the way we want to be, not to exist in a different way of existing that is not the way the white uh, way of of existing, and it's come from this idea of the creation of a Roma as a threat to the state, the creation of Roma as threat to the modern values, to the modern imaginary. European values, threat to, to, to the rule of law, because there is this historical construction that Roma are uncivilized people, Roma are the uncontrollable people, Roma are the barbarians who do not know how to govern themselves, who do not know how to behave. So that's why there is always the figure of the white savior present, but there is always the figure of, of, of the white people telling to us how we should behave, how we should organize ourselves, because there is this historical uh, construction about us that we are people without, without history and that we can only be explained by the power. You know? So from all this historical construction, Roma become a threat to the state, which is to say a threat to, to, to whiteness, a threat to all these, what was con what are considered to be natural forms of, of dominance, because by natural, white are considered to be the superior uh, forms of existence. You ask, why can white Europeans see and denounce oppression in Chiapas or Palestine, but not the oppression yes. against Roma that is taking place within their own communities? To you, what explains why the left in Europe will not stand up against anti-Roma racism? Because this, as, okay. as you know, Sabian, this is not unique to Europe. Here in the States, there is plenty of activism to help those overseas, while those here in the United States do not get the attention they sorely deserve. This seemingly mm -hmm. happens everywhere. So, so why so often is there interest in helping people overseas or who are distant while the suffering that is taking place closer to home gets relatively ignored? Absolutely, and I, I mean, with Sakale, I mean, we do have an idea of, of why, and it, it comes uh, as following. No? First of all, because Europe or Western countries, let's specify Western countries, are, are created under this imaginary um, uh, vision that they are, they are the civilized countries, right? So they cannot allow themselves to, to have racism within their democracy, no? So you ask me why white Europeans, I mean, I, I wrote why white Europeans can see oppression in Chiapas and not in Palestine, because then it will mean that admitting that your white life benefits from the dehumanization of the Roma, Know that your white privileges exist because there is a constant violation of the rights of Roma black Muslims that are living in Europe. Because it will mean admitting that you either fight against that system or by being silent or, or that you become complicit of whiteness in, in Europe. And I think that this is the reason why 
you know, it is always easier to see what's going on outside because then it doesn't affect your white privileges that you are living within your own countries. But yes, you are able to judge. And unfortunately, this kind of act, we saw it uh, last year that was very present. I think it was last year, right? With um, with the unfortunate death of uh, George Floyd. You know, many white Europeans were so vocal about the violence against black people in the US. And, you know, and I called it a white hypocrisy because it was... Uh, um, almost going on the same violence during centuries in, in Europe against Roma, Black and Muslim people. And, and, and actually it was the same year when one Roma was, uh, uh, was supposedly committed a suicide in a police station, our brother Daniel Jimenez. And while we were denouncing this, uh, that it was... Um, I mean, basically, we were saying that even if Daniel Jimenez uh, had killed a suicide in, in, in the prison, yet we had to hold the police accountable because it was under their custody and and the family was, were actually saying that it must, Daniel Jimenez was killed and that he didn't commit a suicide. Anyway, the story was that while many things are happening in Europe, you know, the white Europeans are not able to see it because then it will mean questioning their own white privileges. And that's the thing. You also point out that white feminist movements have adopted the role of white saviors, as you were pointing to earlier, who need to rescue Roma women from the so-called Roma patriarchy. I'm always a little bit skeptical because of the exploitation that Laura Bush did, that the President George W. Bush did when it came to the rights of women in Afghanistan to legitimize Mm -hmm. that war and that invasion. Mm -hmm. So are Roma women any more or less victims of sexism and misogyny than the white saviors who are trying to save them? Do, Do Roma women need to be saved from this Roma patriarchy, and do they have any less power in Roma society than white saviors do having their own white society? I mean, um, let's start from from the fact that I myself finished my my master's studies in, in gender studies in in Budapest. No, so during my studies, I was expected to to think and write and articulate from my gender perspective as a woman. No, but basically, I wasn't allowed to articulate um, from the fact that. I, I was Roma, so I couldn't, I, I, I wasn't allowed to think, uh, to put into center the race that actually determined my 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 experience as a, as a Roma woman, no? So the, the argument is very clear. We Roma women cannot think about our experiences without putting uh, the, the question of race in the center of our analysis, no? So I cannot explain what does it mean to be a Roma woman without explaining uh, the, the issue of race. And this was expected for me to do it in, in during my gender studies, which I, I've struggled a lot because then I would always come um, I always had a clash no, between being a Roma and be- between being a woman. So what, what, um, what I want to say is that there is not such uh, idea as Roma patriarchy. There is only one patriarchy, okay? And I think that we should start from there. And this is my problem that comes with, uh, with white feminist movements that um, I wrote... Um, I wrote kind of a poem, a text, and I called it I Am Your Sister. And there I say, I basically call upon all the feminist 
uh, movements that were calling our Roma men um, um, patriarchalist, while they were completely ignoring uh, the violence that we were facing over that over that period. And I, I, I always wondered on why the cultural perspective of Roma was always a problem for 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 the white people, especially for the white um, for the white feminist movements. No, why such things that were and I still are important for, for the Roma people as, as could be the right to preserve your virginity as a Romani woman was a problem for the white feminist uh, movements. You know? So they couldn't, so, so, so they, I mean, there is this belief that, that they can't accept another way of being a woman, you know, that is not the, the white, way of being uh, a white woman which needs to be the liberal and, and so on, you know, or the fact that a Muslim woman uh, wears a, a hijab does not make her automatically an oppressive woman, you know? So, I, I mean, this is where the clash with the white feminists always uh, existed. And uh, yes, the white savior was always there when it came the question to uh, questions for them related to our cultural aspects, while they, they were never there, for example, to denounce systematic oppression as um, where the forced sterilization of Romani women that the last case is even detected in 2007. So this is a huge issue and they were not there. So what can people who who want to help who are white, what can they do? Yes. You, you talk about how what white society can do is they can confront the whiteness within their own society instead of trying to be the saviors of another society. How would you suggest yes. somebody within white society who is very offended by whiteness, how would you suggest that they confront whiteness? Yes. I mean, let me first Please clarify that, you know, I, I speak to white people in general, but of course there are many exceptional cases of white people who were with us in the anti-racist struggle during, um, during years. So their role, I will just give a, an example, a perfect example of what has been the, the, the role of, of, of our white fr um, white uh, friends in the in the fight. And absolutely, when I refer to white people, I don't refer, you know, based on skin color, but I refer on this ideology of domination is an um, epistemology. You no, know? so uh, our friends in the fight, instead of. For example, they instead of writing a book about who Roma are, as many white people have did and write have written about us from a white perspective, they have uh, created a Roma that does not exist. Well, they should write a book about uh, the systemic oppression of Roma, meaning they should question the state, their institutions, and their relation with trauma. And this is what our white friends in the fight are doing. So it's not about uh, telling Roma how to organize uh, themselves, because this is also a colonial relation, but it's rather listening to what the movement needs and using their white privileges 
to go to spaces that are not accessible for the racialized people and question the power relations that are exercised over racialized people. You even mentioned how ethnic studies can undermine an understanding of the Roma people. How can academia uh, make it so we have a more confused idea about what Roma is? Mm-hmm. How can that happen? Yeah. How does that happen? Uh, how, how does that take place? Yeah, um, for example, um, me and few of my, oh, my, my, my colleague militants in, in Kalyaningi, we are also part of academia. No? First of all, uh, uh, we know that academia is a place of um, power of knowledge, power of, of, of relations. Unfortunately, we still uh, find um, white professors who feel very uncomfortable when we speak about white privileges. Unfortunately, we still need people who say that there is not such a thing as white privilege, there is not such a thing as, as racism over Roma. For some reason, um, to understand that what's going on over the Roma in Europe today is a structural racism, uh, it, it's it's difficult for them that we cannot understand why they cannot see this structural oppression against against Roma, and uh, the fight um, the fight in academia is a very hard uh, one because academia has created this historical imaginary vision of the gypsy. So the gypsy is the white imaginary vision of today's Roma. No? And they have created the, the figure of the gypsy as the, the as the stain in the European uh, countries. So when we say Roma, we refer to to us as, as a Roma nation. We are we are a Roma nation, even though we don't have our own country. We are citizens of uh, in all of the European countries, even though many European countries do not treat Roma as as European countries, no. So the battle in academia is to 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 decolonize the knowledge that was produced about us and to create new knowledge from our embedded uh, experience. So is anti anti Roma racism then caused by the idea that the Roma are stateless but within? A system of states. Yes. So how do you overcome those two things? Because it would seem that even borders would be an, a huge obstacle for the Roma people, that all immigration policy would be a huge obstacle for the Roma people. So how can you both, is that where the, antagon, the antagonism is between white society and Roma? Um. The question is, do we need our own state to be respected under our own rights of uh, existence? For us, it means no. We do not need our own state in order to be respected as Roma. What we need is to live within our European countries, but to live freely. To live freely for, for us, it means to have the right us as a Roma nation to define to define our history, to have the right to tell 
our embedded experiences with the rights world, and most importantly, to have the right to build our own political um, autonomy, which is going to be based on self-organization, self-representation, and more importantly, we need to break up with the dependency with the state, meaning autonomy for the for Kalea Mingus movement is key in our movement because first autonomy um, starts with decolonizing our own minds, um, decolonizing what Gaje has created about us and to a certain point, uh, in which we, we came to believe in that creation. No? So we need to decolonize this internalized idea we have about, about us. Just to give a note that when I say Gaje, it in Romanes means um, white, white people. And here I would like to quote Uria Buteya, the former member of um, the, the political party of indigenous of the uh, Republic of France. She says that First of all, as a racialized people, we must leave the fascination for the white man aside. And I think that this is key for us as Roma to do, because states have did a great work with, with us, unfortunately. They have taught us that we can exist as human beings until they allow us to exist, meaning this is where our critique to all these integration policies come to. To our understanding, integration is a civilizatory mission that aims to fix Roma way of being, to correct Roma way of existing. Integration can only be understood as a disciplinatory mission no? that aims to correct to correct us. So that's why from Kaliamindi we don't seek integration. Actually, we aim to break with all these ideologies. But what we demand is emancipation. Emancipation means that only we as a people can emancipate ourselves and no one else can, can do it. So the problem is not that we do not have a state, so therefore we are facing um, state uh, racism. The problem is that states are built to be racist by natural in order for states to maintain their ideology they need there is a necessity to perpetuate can we for a second imagine a europe without racialized people no i can't because the presence of the racialized people becomes key for the maintenance of white supremacy you uh, offer a 12-point plan for the liberation of the Roma people. Actually, the group, yes. that, the group that you work with, again, uh, they are called Roma for Ourselves. I won't try to pronounce that because yes. I'll do a horrible job. But uh, one of the points you make is to end to uh, school segregation. And you write that throughout Europe, young Roma are confined to schools and other educational institutions in which they receive the message that they are inferior, that their culture is problematic. They receive a deficient education and are inoculated with the idea that they should be integrated while at the same time they are denied this possibility, destroying their self-esteem and value. We urgently call for the creation and direction of our own spaces for community education where our children can feel proud of who they are. So to what extent are these schools places of teaching Roma how to be white? And is the problem, whether the school or educators realize it or not, that they're teaching whiteness? Because this sounds a lot like what people are beginning to learn about 
what happened with white schools for the indigenous here in the United States as well as in Canada. It seems like just a replication of the exact same problem. So are Roma children taught in European schools to hate themselves and their culture? Uh, unfortunately, yes, and this is the reality, and this is what we need to speak about. There is a history that I always uh, talk to myself because I, uh, I, I never want to to forget this history because this is the history that keeps me keeps me going. Okay, so um, one of one of our militants from Kalamenge, who is also my my husband, he used to he used to be a professor in one of the Spanish schools and um, in the primary schools. No? And one day he asked the, the children the typical question, what do you want to be when you when you grow up? No? And all the white children responded what they want to be to, to, to be. And then it came when it came the turn to, to, to the Roma child, of course he didn't know that um Cayetano was, was a Roma too. He said, uh, Cayetano, I do not know what I want to be when I grow up, but I know that I don't want to be Roma. And this is the violence that we are speaking about. This is the violence that everyone needs to hear about. This is a violence that our children face from very early age when they go to the white spaces, you know. And uh, many times when 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 we are in, in conversation, when we say that there is a segregation, we are not seeking for, the, for segregation. Segregation, segregated schools already exist. So if we cannot destroy these places, then let us run the spaces. Let us tell our history that is not being taught in those uh, educational uh, uh, places. Our students do not get a quality education in, in those ghetto, ghetto places. So... We can here we can speak about education, we can speak about uh, social services, we can speak about um, uh, the judicial system, but from Kaleamingi, we always say the problem is not that there are racist teachers, racist police officers, uh, racist social workers. The problem is that the educational, the prison system, the judicial uh, system are built on the basis of anti-Gypsyism. And all these attempts to help out the Roma are all guided by white supremacy as well. That's why there's this kind of condescension when it comes to the white savior kind of thinking. You Can can the Roma, in your opinion, can the Roma and the Gajo, the non-Romani, can they live together as long as whiteness embraces capitalism and rejects collectivism? I mean, um, to leave... Of course, they they can we can live with with Gaje, but the question is here is not only if we can live. The question is here: can we create a society where there are not going to be racial differences, racial domination, or racial racial segregation? And unfortunately, to our people, it is not given the possibility to live with gadgets because our people are placed to live in isolated uh, ghettos, which I call them the European modern prisons, where violence is constant. And at the same time, is justified in those ghettos. Roma life is being controlled, observed, and violated constantly. The, uh, the, the role of the police officers is key in those ghettos because from one side, they are the, as I call them, the guardians of the state politics, 
for the guardians of the so-called uh, social order, which is actually the racial order. And then from the other hand, they, they had the role to teach Roma how to be humans enough and at the same time, supposedly they they, they had the role uh, the role to make Roma ghettos better place to live. No, so there is this fictional idea that from one side we have to save Roma from their barbarian behavior, and then from the other side we have to create a safe space for the white lives. And it, it, this is precisely from where all this violence is always justified. There are these these uh, notions of creating European safe spaces, no? because then we have the racialized bodies that are danger for our society because they are the criminals. There is this fictional idea that Roma are naturally prone to be, to be criminals, so they need to be constantly observed. And then from the other hand, when one Roma is being beaten by a police, it is never only one Roma because there is always the collective uh, punishment and the collective responsibility, the collective criminalization of, uh, of Roma. So the solution is not uh, is not based on on the moral will. No, so the question is not whether Roma and, and white can live together, but the solution is based on uh, political changes that will aim to break up with the racial differences. You write that a policy of historical reparation and compensation that beyond mere recognition begins to generate the conditions that allow the structural difference that benefits the descendants of the executioners to be ended. And that compensates the descendants of the victims of this history, which for us is still present, is necessary. How can uh, reparations give the Roma people autonomy in a way where it doesn't seem like it's just the non-governmental organizations that's that's giving handouts? How can reparations give Roma autonomy? Mm-hmm. First of all, reparation will will allow us you know, to to finally somehow the white world to finally admit that absolutely there is racism against Roma because as as I said, it is still um, barely considered as a structural racism because our culture is still um, being used to be. To be blamed for the situation that uh, we face, and then secondly, we say either we bring some uh, disorder within the white established uh, structure, or we will never uh, establish the um, the equality that we seek for. So reparation policies will allow us to to receive a justice that will go beyond the individual justice. Here we are we, we are less interested on individual justice and we are much more interested on uh, collective justice. Collective justice, is, for example, will give us the opportunity to run our own institutions. Running our own institutions mean finally being recognized as a political subject, able to tell our history, able to construct our autonomy, 
and able to break with the dependency of the state. At the moment when we are going to, to break with the dependency of the state, this means that then we have a power, equal power, to sit with the state and to negotiate. This is the clear aim of Kaleamengi. We do not sit with the state to collaborate, but the only role that we as Roma should have with the state is to negotiate uh, our positions. Just a couple more questions for you. You write that it is more than clear that Europe is not experiencing a Roma problem, but rather a problem of white supremacy and whiteness. In other words, the problem of Europe is its own obsession with white purity and dominance. Can we finally, as an international movement, change the terms of discussions and confront a political problem with a political agenda? Why do you think that obsession with white purity and dominance leads to capitalism and a hatred toward all collectivism is the same uh, is the same ideology that pushed more than half million roma to the guest chamber no so maybe we have built uh, democratic countries but then the ideology behind to behind uh, power and domination remained uh, remained uh, is a key in in today's society, unfortunately. So this I, the whiteness is a sovereignty is being exercised through repetition of su- superiority, and the Roman political subject for the establishment of white security. Um, unfortunately, the states are built under this idea of white um, or of white sovereignty this is the this is what guides european states to be superior over the other uh, states so i i unless we decolonize the entire idea of what democratic society means or we are going to continue to to live another 500 years of, of domination. So absolutely that whiteness is the, is the main agent that produces and reproduces racial oppression and racial capitalism too. One last question for you, Sabian. We've been speaking with Sabian Fitsula, who wrote the Roar magazine article, The Roma Struggle from Protests to Political Liberation. Sabian is a militant with Kala Amange, the Roma for Ourselves, a Roma anti-racist organization. She's also a researcher at the Center for Social Studies at the University of Coimbra in Portugal. And you can follow her on Twitter at Sabi Shutka. That's S-E-B-I-S-H-U-T-K-A. One last Last question for you, Sabian. And as yes. we do with all of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, because it's a question that you may hate, that we may hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might okay. hate your response. So here in the United States, we're having all this controversy over critical race theory, which is just an accurate reading of uh, the racism that has happened here in the United States over its history. Uh, we're seeing a kind of, uh, you know, coming together of uh, thinking about history in a different way in Canada when it comes to what happened at the indigenous schools. Mm-hmm. And then when we think about our conversation today about the Roma, again, it's quite, it's uh, reconsidering our history. So how much do you think there is a 
global uprising against the colonial reading and telling of history. Is that the major change that's happening right now? Okay. Um, I know that uh, the critical race theory in Europe, though, has been uh, attacked, no? and it, it is very interesting to consider why. Whom, whom really bothers to speak about race and, and racism either in the uh, U.S. context or, or European context. You know? For example, uh, George Moles was important examination of the rise of Nazism. You know? He reminds us that in order to understand the origins of racism, we have just to integrate the study of racism within our study of the modern history of Europe, because racism is intimately linked to the policy instituted by states and to the political climate by, by those uh, politicians or governmental institutions that play the, 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 the race card. No? Um, Decolonizing for us is not an academic thing to do, but a political, no? Once again, what is being produced, reproduced by, by, um, by academia is never just an academic production, but it, it is a production by power, uh, power relations. I absolutely support the, the importance of the critical race theory because this is what has also allowed us to understand some of the things that are not under, un, understood, or to say it better, uh, critical race theory have also allowed some of the things that the movements were already articulating outside these academic spaces to be brought within the academic um, academic uh, places. Um, the question is, is critical theory has not a political impact? Well, uh, uh, more so the question was, is that, do you think that is at the crux of all of our uh, political debates and discussion right now? Is that, is that the universal thing that's happening, whether it's here in the United States or in Europe, that it's the rethinking of colonial history? I think it's, as I said, if... In academia, we have a discussion about structural racism, racial capitalism, oppression, um, and so on. For me, this discourse didn't come from academia, but it was reappropriated by the social movements who were already speaking about all these things outside these spaces or were brought by militants from the streets inside uh, academia. Of course, if we combine these two, of course, that they, 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 they have pro provided the platform to speak about it. And that's why we, we, we need, we have more and more uh, discussion around these issues. But I would also say that um, the fact that the structural violence every day is more is, is more and more visibilized is also what brought the discussion to be more present in today's uh, society. Sabian, that was a fantastic answer to the question from Health. Thank you so much for being on our show today. This is just 
a wonderful conversation. We've been speaking with Sabian Fitzula, who wrote the Roar magazine article, The Roma Struggle from Protest to Political Liberation. Thank you so much for being on our show. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And thank you so much for giving us a platform to tell the Roma struggle. When, and if you ever have anybody else that you would like to suggest as a Roma guest to be on the show to tell us what is happening within the movement for the Roma people, please contact us and we'd be glad to have your guest suggestion on the air. I promise I will. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is hell. If you enjoyed our conversation, oh, we're going to have a letter from a listener who doesn't like me using the word enjoyed, but you'll hear that in a moment. If you enjoyed our conversation with Sabian on the Roma, please show your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can find all of our merchandise or by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday with a new monologue from me and a classic interview unavailable anywhere else online at patreon.com slash thisishell. Jess, please remind us what's this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. Question from hell is, so where are you summering? Stephen S, the downstairs toilet. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, there's a theme in. A lot oh of Lord. <laughs> uh, Greg Mason at my rottage in the Cramptons. Krimsky K, I'm summering in the wintertime. <laughs> Fabio L with your mom. <laughs> <laughs> Why does that always make me laugh? I'm yeah. never expecting it. I mean, I know it's always going to be there, but sometimes it just works really. Yeah, well. that's why we're getting fans from Chapo. <laughs> <laughs> um, so where are you summering? <laughs> uh, John K, Smoke Valley, uh, Todd K, uh, Bunker Baby, Adam A, and a van down by the river. Um, JB, uh, JB, I'm unable to exit this vampire castle, so I'll just stay here, I guess. <laughs> um, Warren L, the fish kill zone. And last, uh, Sarah H. in an unusually large forest fire. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in Rotten History, August 2nd, 1900, 121 years ago today, Monday, voters in a North Carolina special election approved an amendment to the state constitution that required residents to pay a poll tax and pass a literacy test in order to vote. It's the American way, and nothing says voter suppression, especially with racialized literacy tests like 1900 North Carolina. The so-called suffrage amendment, as racists hadn't come up with the term voter fraud yet, was calculated to circumvent a measure put in place during Reconstruction after the Civil War, which prohibited denial of voting rights on the basis of race. This new amendment said nothing about race, but the poll tax and literacy test were obviously targeted at the state's African-American residents, a disproportionate percentage of whom were poor and illiterate, further incentivizing racialized poverty and access to to an education to boot. So it really works out great for racists. State politicians who campaigned for the amendment had made no secret of the real intent. Poor whites, meanwhile, were accommodated by a loophole that allowed an illiterate citizen to vote if he or she or a family ancestor had voted in the state before the abolition of slavery. So if you voted when it was illegal for black people to vote, then you can vote, which means it was still illegal for black people to vote. 
The amendment disenfranchised the black population of North Carolina for decades. Though the poll tax would be repealed in 1920, the literacy requirement would remain in effect until it was nullified by the Federal Voting Rights Act of 1965. And even though the literacy test is now unenforceable, it remains on the books to this day as a relic of the Jim Crow era, and several attempts to repeal it in the state legislature have failed. Rotten history. It's the history your right-wing friends, family, and neighbors want to make illegal. I wonder if Ronaldo has trademarked the term critical rotten theory yet. In rotten history, August 3rd, 1946, 75 years ago this Tuesday, tomorrow. Also in North Carolina, a 19-year-old African-American World War II veteran named J.C. Farmer was waiting to board a bus when a white cop approached him and, for reasons unknown, told him to get in the police car. Farmer refused, and in the ensuing scuffle cop was accidentally shot in the hand with his own gun. Farmer got away, but later that day, he was greeted at home by a group of some 40 white men who shot him to death as his mother watched helplessly. And that has to be one of the shortest rotten history entries ever, but it's like a lot of rotten history. A black person is treated unfairly, they stand up for their rights, and then an angry white mob kills them for daring to stand up for their own rights. Also in Rotten History, on August 5th, 1896, 125 years ago this Thursday, near the town of Horatio, Arkansas, three African-American men were killed and eight were wounded when local white residents attacked a group of black railroad workers who were being brought in by the Kansas City, Pittsburgh, and Gulf Railway. The local whites were outraged by the railroad's intention to use black workers in their country. And you gotta wonder if the black railroad workers were aware of just how angry white residents were about the new railroad workers who were coming into town. According to one account, the uh, white residents even claimed that it would be, quote, against their religion to permit the black workers to desecrate the soil with pick and shovel, unquote. So their religion is opposed to black people working for the railroad? Exactly what religion did these people believe in? Though the railroad had sent 20 guards to protect the workers, the local white mob, which included immigrants from Hungary, Italy, and Sweden, managed to break into the workers' camp and start busting heads. So immigrants, who were likely being discriminated against, were attacking their fellow victims of discrimination, black workers. Got it. Makes all too much sense. The attack was part of a wave of race-related violence and harassment of Arkansas that would soon lead to the establishment of sundown towns across the state. So sundown towns are towns that practice discrimination based upon race. The first known sundown town actually prohibited the nighttime movement of those of African-American descent, or of African descent, I should say, when New Hampshire passed the 1714 law and act to prevent disorders in the night. Now, while Wikipedia describes sundown towns as if they are a thing of the past, past tense, clear history, they still very much exist to this day. A July 22nd BuzzFeed article headlined, Sundown Towns Are Still a Problem for Black Drivers, mentions a TikTok that has had 2.5 million views showing a cashier in a Kentucky service station telling a black customer, you best not be around here after dark. This is a sundown town. So sure, rotten history, but remember, rotten present too. 
Finally, in rotten history, August 7th, 1930, 91 years ago this Saturday, a crowd of some five to 10,000 angry white people, a lot of angry white people in rotten history this week, a crowd of some five to 10,000 angry white people gathered around the Grant County Jail in Marion, Indiana, about 60 miles north of Indianapolis, in case you want to visit, where three black teenagers were being held on charges of killing a white man and of raping a white woman named Mary Ball. As the mob grew more aggressive, the police guarding the jail resorted to tear gas, but the police were overpowered as the mob used hammers and crowbars to break into the jail, seized the young prisoners, and dragged them into the street. The crowd hooted and cheered as the three prisoners were beaten and tortured. Two of them, Thomas Shipp and Abram Smith, were hanged from a nearby tree, while the third, a teenager named James Cameron, was saved at the last moment by a bystander who persuaded the crowd that he was innocent, which is the most surprising detail of this entire rotten history. The lynching was captured in a sickening and widely published photo in which a white man is seen glaring defiantly at the camera as he points at the two black men hanging from the tree behind him, which is a picture I'm glad to have not seen or do not remember seeing, which is just as good. I'm pretty sure I've erased that from my memory. After several hours, the sheriff finally cut the dead men down, and people in the crowd rushed forward to cut off pieces of their clothing, hair, and flesh as souvenirs, as was a common practice at lynchings in those days, and reminding us of that fact is becoming a common practice during rotten history, and it's something that's worth being a common practice to remember. The infamous photo of the lynching would inspire Abel Mirapool, to write the protest song Strange Fruit, which was made famous by the jazz singer Billie Holiday. Years later, Mary Ball would publicly declare that she had not been raped after all. And of course she had not, because that's rotten history. And this is hell. Jess, who is on tomorrow's show beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time, right here at thisishell.com. On Tuesday, tomorrow, we'll be speaking with Paul Passavant on his new book, uh, policing protests, the post-democratic state, and the figure of black insurrection. And Wednesday show? And on Wednesday, uh, A.S. Dillingham on his uh, book, Oaxaca Resurgent, Indigeneity, Development, and Inequality in 20th Century Mexico. And as far as Thursday, it's just Jeff as we just know right Jeff now. Right so now. far. Yeah. So Jeff Dorchin will return with a moment of truth on Thursday. He didn't do one last week, so he'll be back this week. We got mail, real actual mail, sent to us at this is hell. Dot, uh, this is hell. Second floor. 2251 West Devon Avenue, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. That's 2251 West Devon Avenue, Chicago, 60659. The wonderful human beings at Kennedy Printing in Detroit's McDougal Hunt neighborhood sent us another box of beautifully printed cards. This one about four by six inches. On the card in the background are faint images of flames and the word the, the words this is hell. In the foreground is the answer given to the question from hell that we posed to Tressie McMillan Cottom when discussing her book, Lower Ed, The Troubling Rise of For-Profit Colleges in the New Economy. Now, the answer was, you're on your own. And for the life of me, I do not remember the question from hell that I asked, but I do remember saying it was the best answer ever to the question from hell. But if you look up Kottam, C-O-T-T-O-M, as in Mary, at uh, thisishell.com, you can find out what that question from hell was. And it's a fantastic conversation. Uh, Tressie is really 
just an amazing person. Along with the cards was a letter that we got from Kennedy Printing, and the letter is from AP. AP writes, thanks for the great podcast and informative guests. Your interview style and questions are incredible. After an interview, you say something like, if you like what you just heard, show your support by blah, blah, blah. AP writes, now look, I listen to This Is Hell, not because I like or enjoy the interviews, but become more informed about many subjects. After listening to your interviews, I've yet to experience the emotions of like or enjoy. I have experienced anger, sadness, anxiety, enlightenment, deprogramming, being educated, or just saying this is really hell. Even though I have yet to experience enjoyment after an interview, or like the substance of the interview, I will make a small donation. Sincerely, AP. AP, you are correct. I should not say if you liked or enjoyed, please show your support. What I should say, thanks to AP, is if the guest you just heard caused you to have anger, sadness, anxiety, lead to your enlightenment or deprogram you, or maybe just leads to you to be more educated or realize that this really is hell, Please show your support like AP did by sending us something in the mail or becoming a Patreon patron or going to thisishell.com and just clicking on support. We also got a package in the mail from the good folks at Wild Folk Farm in Maine, an organic small batch medicinal CBD supplier, which is certified organic by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. Recently on the show, I mentioned how for the first time in out in I don't know how long. I finally got a full night's sleep a couple weeks ago. Immediately after that show, I got an email from David at Wild Folk Farms, who wrote, How art thou? Heard from a recent episode that your sleepy your, that your sleep has been less than bountiful. How's your CBD supply? Also, I'd like to send you one of our ultra-complex political posters we made during our days as the Beehive Design Collective, if you're familiar. I have heard of them, but I don't know where. We told David to definitely send along the posters. David wrote back, I'll send you one of each. The True Cost of Coal is the name of one, and the 10-year-long opus of Mesoamerica Resist before the core of our collective group sort of crumbled. Now there's us... uh, now there's us solo bees continuing the cross-pollination of the grassroots with presentations and popular education workshops based on these collaboratively made materials. Can't wait to get hoodwinked in the hothouse, another print, into your hands within a week's time. Its printing was unfortunately delayed for a spell, but we have our sights set for it to be a real force for narrative change. And defining what time it is in a somewhat myopic and muddled realm of climate where far too often exploitative schemes masquerade as real change while continuing to prop up the carbon quo between the bad math of carbon offsets and the grim portents of pie-in-the-sky geoengineering capitalism is inherently geared to encourage anything but conversations about real solutions and less consumption. Thanks for helping amplify and for all you do on This Is Hell, your show, Re-Individual versus Collective Freedoms, was fantastic. That's our conversation a few weeks ago with Brad Evans, if you want to go back and listen for that. And really resonated with me as an immunocompromised person trying to navigate the implications of COVID-19 with my own mobility constrained by those who don't want to take it seriously in the first place, much less conceive of the ramifications of having a condition which puts many of us at severely heightened risk. BAM! David. 
Thanks, David, and we'll be sharing the images of your art on social medias today. It would be awesome to include your art in This Is Art, the art show, which opens during our 25th anniversary listener appreciation party, which happens on Saturday, September 18th at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Lastly, we also got in the mail some prizes for the raffle at this year's party. During the brief history of This Is How, I offered on the Patreon podcast over the last couple of weeks. I mentioned how people who have contributed to the show have all moved on to bigger and better things. I just keep saying here. For instance, we had a segment called The Eccentric, where a Northwestern University student would discuss a completely fake news article he had written that was published as a farce in the student newspaper. To hear the story of which of his stories got in an Ann Landers column and how it happened, subscribe at patreon.com slash thisishell. Well, that writer is now a New York Times best-selling author of two novels, and we will have both of J. Ryan Straddle's novels, Kitchens of the Great Midwest and The Lager Queen of Minnesota autographed and signed by the author himself as prizes during our raffle at the 25th Anniversary Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show on Saturday, September 18th. If you have anything you would like to offer as a raffle prize or would like to suggest an artist or a musical performer for the party, email me at chuckatthisishell.com. Thanks to today's guest, Sabian Fitsula, who wrote the Aurora Magazine article, The Roma Struggle from Protests to Political Liberation. Thanks to Jess Lipka for producing. Also, thanks to Alex Jerry for booking this week's guests. And thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. This week's Hangover Cure is Swim in the Sea. Swim in the Sea. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>